Welcome to Healthcare IT Today. I'm John Lynn, together with my colleague and friend, Colin Hung. The world of technology and healthcare are ever-changing in new and novel ways, and that's why we love this stuff. So join us as we discuss the latest healthcare and health IT news meshed together in new ways, which help generate ideas and new perspectives. Plus, we'll have a little fun along the way. On today's episode, we'll be discussing the healthcare assumptions that you can bank on. So we're going to go through a whole bunch of healthcare assumptions and and talk about why those are are assumptions you should think about if you're a healthcare IT organization. So be sure to follow the show on Twitter at the hashtag HITSM and our personal accounts at TechGuy and at Colin underscore Hung. In fact, tweet us there if you like the episode, if you hate the episode, we love any sort of feedback. And also be sure to check out our 13 years of health IT blog content at healthcareitoday.com. So you know what they say about assumptions. <laughs> That's right. That's right. This is a P, this is a G-rated uh, podcast though, so we won't repeat what it really means. But, uh, yeah, no, this was this was all born out of a conversation you and I were having earlier, John, after we read an article around you know data and you know the importance of security and data breaches and and you basically just said you know you know what like in the today's day and age you just should assume your data is going to be breached and that's really kind of the inspiration for today's episode um, because because you're and I thought you were absolutely right like if you're designing a product today or if you're designing a system today you should just assume that at some point your data is going to be breached. Something's going to happen and people are going to gain access to it that shouldn't. Well, what was shocking is the article said the opposite. The article said, oh, in these mobile health apps, we should assume that a data breach is unlikely. And I'm like, are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) I think their argument was that the data inside it wasn't as valuable, which was probably true in some health applications. But it turns out most hackers don't give a rip about what data is in there. <laughs> they're just going around searching for vulnerabilities. I mean, there are some that are very targeted and they're getting more targeted, but a lot of the hacks that happen are just opportunistic hackers that have you know, different bots or different uh, algorithms going around searching for vulnerabilities in applications and then taking whatever data they can find. So. The idea is that you don't need to really worry about data breaches in a, in a healthcare application is just shocking to me. In fact, the opposite, exactly what you said, is true for me. You should assume a data breach is going to happen, and obviously you should mitigate as many data breaches as possible, but you should be ready for when the breach happens. Yeah, like the way I look at this is, uh, you know, by making this proper assumption that it will happen, it, it causes you to think in a couple of ways. As a product designer, I would think much like how you design bulkheads in a ship, you know, you know, if it should, you know, should something happen, you want to be able to close off. I would design a product using that same kind of theory. Like if I know a data is going to, a breach is going to happen, can I isolate my data such that if one part of the database is accessed, perhaps the other parts are safe and are secured and therefore you're 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 basically minimizing the damage as opposed to prevent you know putting 100% in prevention which we know is never going to be 100% uh, preventable the other yeah, thing too if is Amazon and Google can't be 100% then there's no way a little mobile health app developer can be right 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 uh, and the other and the other thing too is if you're just looking at the processes around your data and your IT processes it's a smart thing to assume a data breach will happen and therefore what what is the protocol? 
what's the response protocol from IT? What's the response protocol from marketing? How are you going to PR spin? You know, how are you going to PR this? How are you going to reply to the? How are you going to actually connect, contact all the people affected? Like, it, it shouldn't be a surprise that when a breach happens, that's what you're going to have to do. So, how do you? How are you going to even identify what was lost or what was breached? I don't think people think about that part of it because they're hoping it'll never happen to them. Do you? What do you think it is? Yeah, how do you think a healthcare organization looks at this? Because obviously they would love for all of their vendors to never be breached. But I think they need to come at it from the same standpoint, which is that a breach is going to happen. And are you ready? Uh, I think it's almost more challenging on the provider side where in many ways they don't have full control over what's going to happen. I mean, certainly you have to vet the organization and things, but, you know, that you, you can't hold them to 100% standards since uh, we just talked about it's not really possible. Well, yeah, I mean, and, you know, one of the basic things I would, as an IT leader today, ask the question, which I never would have asked in the past, would be, what's your audit log look like? Like, what is the audit log capable of doing? Because if a breach happens and someone's able to get, I'll call it access through the normal channel of the UI to your system, will it actually log that? So at least you can track, well, I can see what records they looked at or looked up. I can see what searches they did. Is it in a format I can see? Is it easy to export that out so that I can build a list of all the records that they, you know, that they downloaded, right? It's not something I would have you thought have of. You have the forensic available to know exactly. what happened in the breach, basically. Exactly. So that's a question I would never have asked in the past. But now, you know, if you assume your breach will happen, those, those tools and that capability better be in that product that you're looking at. Well, and if you look at the HIPAA rule itself and when you look at it, they, they don't say create a foolproof 100 percent plan that you will never get breached. It's literally called a risk assessment. So you're literally just assessing the risk of a breach because they understand that a breach is likely to happen as well. And so, you know, at the end of the day, I guess that's how a CISO can sleep at night is if they've done good processes to look at it and say, okay, where are we at risk and what have we done to mitigate that risk? And that's the best we can do. And it turns out that's okay under HIPAA as well. Then, you know, maybe that's sufficient and maybe that's how they can sleep at night. There you go. Actually, that's a great transition, John, to the next assumption that I would want, I want to talk to you about, and that is HIPAA. Um, you mentioned it just there. You know, one of the assumptions I think we have to make in healthcare is that sooner or later, someone's going to bring up HIPAA in your sales process, in your uh, implementation, and try to use that as an excuse to keep the status quo. Yeah, well, I think they use it to keep the status quo. I think they use it as an excuse to implement a different solution other than yours uh, because their buddy or some, you know, some other company took them out for better drinks than you did. Or, I mean, not that that would ever happen in health IT. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, HIPAA will be used as an excuse to get out of anything that they don't want to do. In some cases, maybe they just want to be lazy and they don't want to implement whatever solution it is because they know that it's a lot of work. And yeah, I guess that's your point of the status quo. Uh, you know, the, the status quo feels much uh, like much less work than, uh, you know, adopting it. So, you know, HIPAA is used in all sorts of wrong ways. Well, yeah, and I think part of it is born out of, you know, wanting not to do anything because let's be honest, there's enough work to go around. The last thing we need is another project. 
But at the same time, I think there's just some, you know, there's a lot of ignorance as to what HIPAA really is. And so people will legitimately think they're bringing up a, a, an obstacle that needs to be investigated when in fact you go, no, that's not really the case. So there's a lot of confusion as we still today around HIPAA and what it entails and what it doesn't entail. And uh, so I think as a, as a, both a vendor as well as an IT leader trying to push forward a project, you just got to be aware that this will happen. So, so don't get frustrated, you know, even though internally you just want to bang your head against the wall, don't get frustrated. Make sure you have some resources available to educate people and, hey, you know what, we've addressed the HIPAA concerns, we've done the risk assessment, here's what it said, or here's, you know, maybe you're a bit confused, here's some documents that you might want to read about HIPAA, and by the way, we're still moving ahead, right? Like, mm -hmm. I just, you have to be ready for it rather than sort of expect no you know hope that it doesn't get brought up in your particular case because i think 80 percent of the time someone in the room is going to bring this up <laughs> or they might even just ask the question what about hipaa right you know, it's just a ploy uh, well i mean it, uh, obviously it's legitimate right but if they were really cared about the patient say what about the patient privacy that would be a much better question it would be a very different question than what about hipaa What's fascinating, I was just talking with Ivo Nelson and talking about kind of the waves of what happens in, in uh, healthcare technology. In fact, he said he named his company Next Wave Connect because there's always these waves of, of activity, if you will, or excitement around what happens in health IT. And he used HIPAA as one of those waves. So when the HIPAA rules came out, there was this explosion of business of people who were saying, oh, how do we make sure we're HIPAA compliant? And so then all of these these new tools came out to help you be HIPAA compliant and all these consulting services and this risk, you know, so HIPAA created this wave of innovation, if you will, around, you know, that could come, right? Meaningful use did it for EHRs. And obviously we could discuss whether either one is innovative or not. But interestingly now, you know, HIPAA was originally driving business and now it's an excuse not to do business. It's amazing how things evolve. Yeah, no, it's fun. I mean, HIPAA, again, you know, just know it's going to be brought up. Uh, sometimes it's brought up as a joke. I've seen that again a few times. Uh, and, and, uh, especially around April Fools. I mean, just, but but it, happens enough, it happens enough that I think IT leaders don't know if it's an April Fools joke. So if you're listening in this, you know, to this episode around April Fools, that might be a good one to pull on your IT person. Uh, <laughs> That's no, a but, good idea. But no, I mean, I, I would call back to our friend Matt Fisher, who always says, HIPAA doesn't have to be an excuse, right? He said, you know, it, it, certainly it can be used that way and is used that way. But if you're careful, you know, you can usually comply with HIPAA and still accomplish whatever task you're trying to accomplish. Right, right. Well, here's, a, here's another assumption, John, that I wanted to talk with you about. And that's, you know, uh, my, my favorite, users will never do what you expect them to do. <laughs> I think you know, that's a pretty bankable assumption uh, that you should make when designing your systems and designing your products. That users will never use it the way you think it should be used. <laughs> Do you have any good examples of that uh, that you can think of? Uh, I mean, I, I think I, predicting users is just feels like almost an impossible task, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think I think this goes to obviously it goes to user design. I think. You know, if you're expecting a user to follow the 22 steps to, you know, do this potential entry, you can be guaranteed that someone is going to find a way to cut those 22 down to 12 using your system in a way that was never meant to be that done that way. 
sometimes that'll be with IT person's help to build, build some sort of macro to fill in the five fields that are always defaulted to the same answer or something like that. But but the way I would look at this is say, you should really make sure that you spend some time on your user interface to, to make sure that the easiest path is the path that you want your user to take, right? And so therefore they're more likely to take it than if you make that the one path, the super difficult one. Yeah, so I have two thoughts on this. One is this doesn't have to be a negative one. It actually could be a positive one, right? Like you could say users will never do what is expected of them and you may discover things that you didn't realize were even possible in how they were using the system to more effectively treat a patient. And so I, I, it can be a, a, a great opportunity of discovery where you'll discover something that you didn't even think about in the design but actually facilitated a solution to a problem they were having. So yeah, we don't have to necessarily necessarily always looking at it from a negative light. I think the challenge with this is, can you take something as sophisticated and complicated as an EHR and really create one path? I mean, Epic is always noted for saying, we force them to do it our way, which I, I don't know if they quite say force, but that's what people say, right? <laughs> epic way, and you got to implement it the epic way. And if you do it the epic way, you're going to results. And if you don't, then we're not supporting you and this, that, and the other, right? And, and they do that across a wide spectrum of things, including what servers it's on, why they don't run virtual machines, are they in the cloud? And they've certainly evolved in how they've handled some of those issues. But can you take something as complicated and as complex as an EHR and expect them to work one way? And I look at it and say, I don't think you can, right? I, I think it's so complicated. And, and then, you know, that's why I get, always get angry when someone throws up the EHR user interface and says, this is ugly. How come does, it doesn't look like my iPhone screen? And then they put up like an iPhone screen of a text message app and you're like, you're doing one function, you're texting each other <laughs> and the EHR is asking you to do 600 things, right? I mean, I think the better example is comparing the EHR user interface to the airline you know, pilot's interface. There's buttons and switches everywhere. It's not very usable either. You have to go to how many hours of training to be able to learn how to do uh, an airplane? The same is somewhat true in EHR because the complexity is so much worse. Yeah. No, and I, and I think, you know, you bring up an excellent point. And one of the things that, that certainly I've been advocating for a while or, or I've always been questioning is, you know, why don't products in the health IT space adopt some of the things that websites have in terms of tracking where people are clicking, mm -hmm. tracking what fields get filled in, what fields don't get filled in, and then actually using that data to improve your product. So if you know this screen never gets used, why are you continuing to develop it? Right. Or if you see that, hey, when, you know, if you track the person's mouse right on the screens, uh, we, you know, with their permission, of course, um, you know, what are they clicking on and why are they clicking on this thing all the time? And you'll discover things like, oh, that's that's why we made this one actually really difficult to use. This button is so small. If we made it bigger, it'd be faster or, you know, you can learn those things. But I think the, the audit capabilities and the tracking capabilities were never into the EHRs and never into the health IT products that you don't know. And therefore, you know, when, when users come and de describe to you what they're doing, they inevitably miss these kind of small opportunities to improve your product. Well, it's interesting you talk about that from a usability standpoint and why aren't they tracking it? And I agree it should be. And I think they do to some level, right? 
I don't think it's fully integrated into their products, but I think they do it on a smaller scale basis with a certain set of users. So I think there is more of that going on. We were actually having this discussion recently on Twitter with some people about this exact topic and why aren't they doing more usability studies? Essentially your question. And I started diving into it a little bit with someone. I said, well, I think that's interesting to do usability studies. But why isn't the EHR vendor or any health IT application monitoring how long it takes for a whole population of user to do X, Y, and Z task? And if in X tasks, Colin takes five minutes and John takes 10 minutes, why am I not reaching out to John and saying, hey, everyone else in the system is using it in five minutes, but it's taking you 10. So what can I do to help you? And then maybe it's not even a usability thing, might be a training issue, right? It might be something local to them or you, that you could solve and would make their experience better. So why isn't the EHR tracking and understanding the user behavior that maybe is a training issue or, or other issue related to it, right? That's uh, right. Because yeah, that goes not doing what they should expect either. Right? Exactly. <laughs> so expect them to forget half of what we trained them. Oh, we should expect. <laughs> well, and actually, you know, funny enough, that's what Justin Campbell wrote a, a, a nice article from Galen Healthcare on this very thing about using the audit log as a source of uh, inspiration for your UI and UX design. So uh, definitely, I think that's that's something that uh, more people should be looking into. And by the way, hey, if you're just tuning in, you're listening to Healthcare IT Today with John Lin and Colin Hung on the Healthcare Radio Now Network. Today we're talking about assumptions you should just bank on in healthcare. And uh, we've talked about three so far, they've been pretty interesting and uh, actually I'm looking forward to this next one. Uh, John, this is a universal truth I think, which is of course that IT projects will be delayed. Just bank on it, just make sure you factor that into your, uh, your decisions. Yeah, I mean, we'd love to think that it wouldn't. Uh, you know, what's interesting, we haven't even talked about cells, and if we want to talk about delays, but <laughs> <laughs> IT projects can be even worse. I think there's been a few exceptions, but uh, I love the story and example I heard from uh, Compass Medical at the Expedia Health Conference, and Drew Mill, their CIO, and I think he also does CMIO with them as well. He talked about how delayed they were in their EHR implementation. Interestingly enough, he said, I don't suggest it to everyone else. <laughs> He's like, I don't suggest taking as long as we did. He said, but there was this powerful effect that happened because they were delayed so long, they actually had a, a, a really nice go live because they'd spent the time that was needed to fully investigate, fully test, fully uh, train on the system. And so it made the go live better. So there are some advantages to delays and sometimes it's needed and necessary. And I think that's what he would argue in that case. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's just so many things that could delay a project. And so it's no surprise when an IT project, especially in healthcare gets delayed. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is something that an IT leader internally can, I guess you can say, account for, right? I have multiple projects on the go that involve different departments, so if one gets delayed, you can easily deploy resources to another. Um, you can, uh, you know, a lot of times when a project's delayed, it's usually a sign that buy-in wasn't 100% complete. So one way to mitigate this is to make sure that upfront you're doing a lot more of the education before you start coding and before you start doing deploying a lot more resources. Spend more time up at the front half 
you know, making sure that, you know, your clinical people are bought in, your administrative people are bought in, and therefore your project's less likely to get delayed down the road. Um, so I, you know, and, and as a vendor, I would definitely make sure that you're not 100% dedicating your resources and not, you know, meaning that you're uh, making sure that you've got other things that you could pivot them to, otherwise you could be stuck with a lot of resources being idle as a vendor. Yeah, and sometimes your payments are dependent upon reaching certain milestones, which means your payments may be delayed as well. Yes, yeah, definitely something you got to make sure you, you, you uh, watch out for. Should we um, as IT people be more sympathetic of doctors running late? if our projects are always running late? I mean, I, I think they're, you know, in the microcosm world, that's kind of the same thing, isn't it? <laughs> I think that's a, that's a pretty good suggestion you're making, John, is that if we know our projects are always gonna be delayed, why shouldn't we be tolerant? The only thing I would say is that usually when our projects are delayed, it's not like as if someone's, you know, uh, out of work. <laughs> There's usually plenty of other work that they can pivot to that they can go work on. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess if you're delayed, you know, they, they get a fresh slate every day, unlike an IT project, which might go on for years. But anyway, maybe we should be a little more sympathetic to, to doctors that are running late. <laughs> That's a good one. Uh, let's get to this last one, John, very quickly. Um, budgets will suddenly change in healthcare. This is another bankable assumption. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think um, it's amazing how what could hijack a budget. My favorite is the breach, of course. Uh, you know, uh, unpredictable. And as soon as it happens, all budget goes to mitigation, goes to notifying the patients. It goes to all of that security budget that you wanted to spend but never could get justification for. But it comes from a lot of other areas as well. I mean, those same principles can steal your budget. So I think, you know, you have to be careful. Budgets are only good once they're spent. <laughs> yeah. No, and I, I, I definitely agree with you there. I think, uh, you know, one way to mitigate this or bake this assumption into what you're planning for is, is make sure you use that agile method, right? So that at the end of every phase of the project, you've got something that's deliverable. So should those future phases not materialize or have to be delayed because of budget reasons, at least you got something that you can deploy, something that you can use. Uh, rather than going for the big bang where, you know, you get to phase three and then you've got to finish phase four before you can roll it out. And then phase four is like a year delayed. You know, that's just going to that's not good for every anybody who's invested that much time in a project. So, you know, build in these little, um, you know, uh, milestones to make sure you've got something deliverable and that will help mitigate the problem where your budget gets cut. Yeah, it's great advice. I'm also reminded of I think it was. Um, I think it was Ed Marks that was telling me and, and kind of illustrating to me what I call the strategic CIO versus the operational CIO. The strategic CIO is one that's a strategic part of the healthcare organization and has a voice that explains why the different IT budgets are an important strategic part of the organization. They're in a much better position to justify why the budget should not be changed, not be cut, Whereas the operational CIO whose job they think is to just make sure the lights are on, make sure the internet's running, make sure you have access to the server, but I'm not strategic. Well, you know, they can more likely have their budgets cut because they're not considered a strategic part of the organization and they don't have a strategic voice in the organization. So, uh, you know, and that's why if I were CIO, I would want to be a strategic CIO and not an operational CIO. And, I, you know, we see both of them in healthcare. 
No, you're absolutely right. And it's, it's a great piece of advice there, John, to make sure that you do have that voice uh, and that you do bake that into your project, you know, so people know, hey, here's the consequence. I know we, there's nothing we can do about it, that we have to cut the budget or we have to move the budget from here to here because of a change in priority. But here's the consequence. And having that at the ready is very helpful so that you're not scrambling and people are making the proper decisions because sometimes these decisions are just made up based on lines on a spreadsheet, right? And I got to find 50K. Here's a project that happens to be 50K. I'm just going to cut it. Not realizing that, hey, this is actually, you know, going to cause a PR nightmare, and, you know, on sort of the marketing side or, hey, it's going to cause us 100K because of the contract, you know, that we negotiated. People sometimes don't, don't know that. So just having that information handy for when this call comes uh, it would be very, very helpful for you. And it gives the strategic CIO the information. If a cut does happen, what went into it? And what was the decision making? They, so they can at least bring it back to their team and explain why the cut had to be made or why the change had to be made. Whereas the other one is just like, well, it got cut and I'm not sure why. And, you know, so, you know, I think people are okay with change or accept change when they understand the why, but when it's just done without the explanation, then, you know, then they get even more frustrated. So I think that's a powerful idea. Too. All right, John, can you believe it? That's the end of another episode. 20 episodes in. 20 episodes Ooh. in. Hey, so thank you for all of you tuned into this episode of Healthcare IT Today. To find out more details about our show, check out our programs page on healthcarenowradio.com. And please share your voice and engage with the community at healthcareittoday.com or on Twitter using the hashtag HITSM. I'm Colin Hung with my friend and health IT collaborator, John Lynn. Thanks for listening. Have a great week.